there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Blair. Wanna hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Margaret sat hunched over her laptop, typing eagerly. Her eyes stung from staring at the screen for hours, but she couldn't stop now. She had an itch in her brain, an inkling that she was closer than ever to a breakthrough. After reading hundreds of articles on her grandfather's kidnapping, Margaret hadn't found anything new about the story. So she decided to take an alternate approach. She started looking for information on another person. Someone who nearly tore her family apart generations before Margaret's birth. Finally, scrolling on a genealogy website, she found the familiar name, Julia Anderson. She let out a sigh of relief. Now she had her lead. This was the other side of the story she had heard so many times. As a child, her grandfather, Bobby Dunbar, had been kidnapped by a traveling handyman, He was a hostage on the road for eight months before his family finally found him and brought him home. Margaret was reading the notes under Julia's name on the website when she came across a line that turned her blood to ice. It read, Julia had a son from her first marriage named Bruce, who was kidnapped from North Carolina when he was six years old and taken to Louisiana. She tried to get him back, but the people that kidnapped him won him in court, and changed his name to Bobby Dunbar. She rubbed her eyes, head spinning. This couldn't be true. It contradicted everything her family had ever told her. Though she knew the story incredibly well, she never considered that her grandfather was not rescued. That instead, Bobby Dunbar was stolen. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. 
You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our final episode on the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar, the four-year-old boy who vanished in the summer of 1912. Last week, we covered Bobby's disappearance in a Louisiana swamp and the nationwide manhunt that his parents launched to find him. We also discussed his miraculous return and the fight over whether or not the recovered child was the original Bobby Dunbar or a boy named Bruce Anderson. This week, we'll focus on two theories. The first is the family story that all the Dunbar children knew, that Bobby Dunbar was kidnapped and later rescued. The second is that the boy Lessie and Percy Dunbar brought home was not the same one who had vanished in the swamp, but a different child, Bruce Anderson. Bobby Dunbar was only four years old when he disappeared into the marshland near Swayze Lake, Louisiana, on August 23, 1912. From that day forward, nothing in the Dunbar family would be certain. Many suspected that Bobby died of exposure the first day of his disappearance or was eaten by animals. But Bobby's parents, Percy and Lessie Dunbar, refused to believe their son was gone for good. They continued their search, and eventually, they found him. The man who had Bobby, William Walters, was a traveling tinker and piano tuner. When the police detained him, he fervently denied kidnapping the boy. He said that the boy's mother asked him to take the child with him on the road, since she was a hard-working woman struggling to support her growing lad. This story was backed up by the mother herself, Julia Anderson. After a dramatic confrontation in the Dunbar's hometown of Opelousas, Louisiana, the Dunbars won the day and reunited with their son. Walters was sentenced to life in jail. Julia left the state heartbroken, taking with her any inkling of Bobby's uncertain identity. So was the boy the Dunbars took home the same child they'd lost? This is the case that Margaret Dunbar Cutright set out to solve in 1999 when she started going through her great-grandmother Lessie's scrapbook. It contained every newspaper article concerning Bobby's disappearance, the search for him, and the battle for custody. Margaret had her work cut out for her. When she received Lessie Dunbar's collection, it contained over 400 newspaper clippings and records, all out of order. She had to piece together her grandfather's story, detail by detail. But she was confident that she could confirm her grandfather's identity. As far as Margaret was concerned, the boy found in Mississippi was the same one that disappeared in Louisiana. She merely wanted to reaffirm the family lore. At the time, Margaret's husband Wayne worked in a different state and only returned home for weekends. With her adult children leaving the house soon, Margaret had more than enough time to devote to the records. Some members of her family, especially her father's siblings, expressed doubts about Margaret's digging. However, Margaret paid little heed to them. As she waded through the dense record of newspapers from 1912 and 1913, 
she realized that the details of this story were far uglier than the version her family told her. Margaret found that the search for Bobby cut into some nasty societal prejudice. In one letter, a witness claimed that a tramp was using Bobby to beg for money. Another bluntly declared that the public suspected black communities of the kidnapping. On top of that, many newspapers couldn't fully be trusted. One paper inaccurately reported the $1,000 reward as $10,000. Since journalists filled the story with their own hot air, discerning the truth became much more complicated. Determined to dig through the opinion and find the facts, Margaret expanded her search. She started traveling all over not only her home state of North Carolina, but also Louisiana and Mississippi, going to various libraries and halls of records. Her husband, Wayne, was very supportive of her search. In fact, for her birthday, he got her a card for the Library of Congress. As her investigation took her from small-town libraries all the way to the Library of Congress itself, Margaret Dunbar gathered all the information she could on the story. She collected maps, family records, and letters. Since they were from the 1910s, almost all of these documents were hard copies, so Margaret painstakingly transcribed them onto her computer. There seemed to be an endless amount of reporting to sift through. During the eight months of searching, Bobby's disappearance became national news. Many well-intentioned people sent in pictures of children to see if they were the missing boy from the headlines. Every one of them matched the child's description in the papers. But to everyone, the Dunbar said, no, that's not Bobby. When reports of the suspicious tinker surfaced in April of 1913, Percy and Lessie did not immediately respond to the town's claims that the boy with him was Bobby. They asked to see the pictures first. And this time, they didn't say no immediately. Instead, they talked extensively on the phone with the people of Hub and the sheriff's office. Eventually, Percy decided to come down to Mississippi to see the boy with his own eyes. Again, this became a major news story. Margaret reread articles about the meeting between her great-grandfather and the lost child. When Percy got to Hub, Sheriff Day was keeping the boy in his car. According to the book Margaret co-wrote about her investigation, when Percy saw the child's filthy face, he involuntarily said, Bobby. Upon hearing that name, the boy's face lit up. Percy immediately started. His son had recognized his own name. But this moment of reunion lasted only for a moment. The boy looked down, away from Percy, as shy and withdrawn as he had been since the police picked him up. Nevertheless, from what Margaret could tell, this was the moment Percy became convinced it was his lost son. However, Percy still harbored his doubts. According to the newspapers, Percy said the child was very like Bobby in looks and personality. But two major details stood out. The first was that a telltale scar on Bobby's left foot had disappeared. And even more suspicious were his eyes. Though both children had blue eyes, the one found with Walters had narrow eyes. Bobby had wide eyes. A doctor explained to the doubtful father that this was possibly only an illusion. 
If Bobby spent months on the road, he would have to squint in order to protect himself from the elements. This would make his eyes seem narrower than they were. Though Margaret was baffled by this idea, it was apparently enough for her great-grandfather, Percy. The professional's opinion got Percy's hopes up again, and he sent for his wife. After meeting with him, Lessie became convinced that this must be Bobby. But if this was indeed the long-lost Bobby Dunbar, nobody knew how he ended up in the company of a wandering eccentric like William Walters. The trial of William Walters was beset by mobs of people clamoring for justice. But waiting for a judge's verdict was hardly on their minds. They knew who was guilty, the tramp with the greasy mustache. During Walters' trial, the prosecution had to build a timeline that established him as the kidnapper. Fortunately for them, they had public opinion on their side. In court, witness after witness testified that they saw Walters near the marsh where Bobby was kidnapped, either on or before the day Bobby disappeared. But the truth of these reports was soon cast into doubt. The sightings became more and more outlandish. One woman claimed that she was a widow and Walters had attempted to take her son, but neither of these facts were true. Her husband was in prison and her son was an adult. Another man reported seeing Walter's wagon in Louisiana in 1912, yet he repeatedly changed the dates and circumstances of the sighting. Though these unreliable reports made prosecuting the handyman more difficult, they did little to sway public opinion. Most people were still convinced Walters was guilty. The one person who could prove his innocence was the woman who claimed that the boy was her child, Julia Anderson. But Julia was unable to identify the boy. Yet even as she failed to pass the test, the Dunbars were not mean to her. In fact, they encouraged her to seek aid as they had and find Bruce. Even though she threatened to take the boy they believed was their son, they didn't attack her. In fact, during the trial, Percy said that he was not immediately able to identify Bobby because, in his words, I needed to be sure a human life was at stake. For Margaret, this only solidified her belief in the family story. Her great-grandparents did their due diligence and treated the conflict as a large misunderstanding. All they wanted was to see the lost child reunited with his loving parents. And as they cared for Bobby during the trial, they loved him as their own. Though it took some time for Bobby to acclimate to his old life, he soon appeared happy with his parents, and they continued to uncover evidence that he was indeed Bobby. For instance, Percy noticed that the boy pronounced the word automobile as oddbeel, the same way that Bobby used to. And it was Bobby's own memory that would incriminate William Walters. During her extensive search, Margaret unearthed a newspaper clipping that contained an interview with her grandfather. After another long day of interviewing the witnesses about Walters, a reporter approached the young boy. They asked if he had recognized his erstwhile guardian, to which the child said yes. But what he said next upended everything the public thought they knew. The boy said that one day he had been tending to the horses while the handyman played the piano. 
While this happened, the horse got scared, and the other boy fell out of the wagon. The astonished reporter asked him what happened to the other boy. Bobby stated, they took Bruce to the graveyard. Margaret let out an astonished breath. Her grandfather might have been one of two children lost, Bruce and Bobby. But which one of these boys was the original Bobby Dunbar? The one who lived or the one who died? Coming up, the details and contradictions that make Bobby Dunbar's identity far from certain. Now, back to the story. South Carolina, 2000. Margaret Dunbar Cutright poured over her mountain of information. The more documents she transcribed, the more confusing her grandfather's story became. Her whole life, she was told that he was lost and recovered, but now she was not so sure. A new piece of evidence implied that Bobby was one of a pair of boys in his kidnapper's wagon. Then, her world was turned upside down when she saw her own family referred to as kidnappers on a genealogy site. Now, Margaret was forced to confront the possibility that her grandfather, Bobby Dunbar, had been taken from another family. It was a harrowing notion, but one she had to consider if she was to find the truth. Truly shaken, she reached out to the relatives of Julia Anderson, the woman who might be her great-grandmother. Without informing her extended family, Margaret met with Linda Tarver, Julia's granddaughter. Linda, it turned out, was exactly as driven to find the truth as Margaret was. But their perspectives were completely the opposite. Margaret set out to unravel this mystery with the belief that her grandfather had always been Bobby Dunbar, whereas Linda believed that he had once been Bruce Anderson, her long-lost uncle. They began to work together, sharing information and leads, but their opposing objectives soon came between them. Margaret especially got under Linda's skin when she gave a presentation at a historical society in Mississippi. When she told the story, she described Julia in similar terms that the media of 1913 did, coarse, promiscuous, and low class. This infuriated Linda, but she didn't let it consume her. Instead, Linda used that anger to encourage Margaret to dig into the other side of the story. Initially, Margaret was focused on the part that concerned her family. But with Linda's encouragement, she turned her attention to the Andersons. It was time to seriously consider the theory that her grandfather was actually Bruce Anderson. Julia Anderson claimed that in February of 1912, she let William Walters take care of her son for a few days. He had kept her child for over a year longer than he'd promised, but according to the mother, the boy and the tinker got along very well. And as Margaret read more about Julia, what originally seemed like tiny details in the Dunbar family stories now stood out as major inconsistencies and outright misinformation. This made it nearly impossible to determine whether Bobby's identity had been truly tested or if it had all been an elaborate show trial biased against Julia. 
Even Percy's story of meeting Bobby was murky and unclear. As Margaret investigated further, she found that some details of the meeting didn't sound like a family reunion. In spite of a brief flash of recognition, Bobby screamed when Percy attempted to embrace him. His father couldn't calm him, but Sheriff Day did with relative ease. These were red flags that everybody seemed to ignore. Things became even more complicated when Lessie came to Mississippi. Unfortunately, there was no way for Margaret to know what Lessie's reaction was to seeing her child for the first time in eight months. At the time, it was common practice for rival newspapers to publish contradicting versions of the same story. And this was the case with the Dunbar family reunion. One article told the emotional story of the dirty boy waking and seeing Lessie Dunbar standing before him. He cried, Mother, and they embraced warmly before she fainted. However, another newspaper told a vastly different story. In this version, Lessie peered at the sleeping boy in the candlelight. When asked if it was her child, she said, I am not quite sure. A third story says the boy awoke, screaming and thrashing against his mother. Though she attempted to calm him, she was unsuccessful. This paper reported that she yelled, Oh baby, don't you know your own mama and daddy? But Margaret's contradictory findings didn't stop there. This same muddling of records extended to Bobby's meeting with his brother Alonzo. One paper reported that he did not recognize his sibling, whereas another reported that he kissed Alonzo, saying, There's my bubba. But there was no way for Margaret to tell which story was closer to the truth. And Percy and Lessie had other reasons to hesitate before loudly claiming that he was their child. After they initially saw the boy, the couple, accompanied by Sheriff Hawthorne, was approached by a crowd of people. The rabble demanded to know if the boy was Bobby Dunbar. Though they seemed outraged for the right reasons, both the sheriff and the Dunbars knew what they really were. This was no concerned citizenry. This was a lynch mob. At the time, it was all too common for so-called citizens' committees to take justice into their own hands, especially in the South. Though the primary victims of such extra-legal executions were black, the lynching of whites was not unheard of. William Walter's fate now hung on every word that this crowd would hear. And although they wanted the child to be their boy, the Dunbars were deeply disturbed by the idea of a murder taking place in their name. Fortunately, Sheriff Hawthorne answered for them. He told the crowd that neither Percy nor Lessie were sure. This may have been the truth, but it could have been a morsel that the sheriff threw to the mob to keep them from taking the law into their own hands. Either way, the assembly dispersed. As the Dunbars climbed into Hawthorne's car, Lessie broke down in tears, emotionally tormented by the day's events and anguished by the idea of losing Bobby again. She clung to her husband, holding him so tightly that it seemed like without him, she would melt away. Meanwhile, the authorities delved into Walter's relationship with the boy found in his care. Strangely, Bobby, the supposed victim, 
seemed to respect his captor, even though witnesses had seen Walters whipping him. Walters defended himself, saying that he only beat the child to discipline him, and never harshly or without cause. Though this seems cruel to modern ears, in 1913, it was not unheard of for parents to beat their children, so the prosecution needed more to prove Walters was a kidnapper. And the defense of the tinker became much stronger when Julia Anderson came to Opelousas to make her claim to the child. But Julia Anderson never had a real chance to prove whether the boy was hers or not, since from the start, she was in enemy territory. Opelousas had already thrown a parade in Bobby Dunbar's honor. They were not going to surrender their prodigal son to an outsider. Though the press had been divided on Lessie Dunbar, they certainly were united about Julia. Not only did the newspapers ridicule her for being a divorced single mother, there was also no objectivity in the court of Opelousas. The officials claimed that they were testing whether Julia would recognize her child. However, the trial itself was made to be failed. The test took place in the house of the Dunbar's lawyer, and the committee that evaluated her was stacked with people whom the Dunbars knew well. This included the Dunbar's family doctor and a doctor who had already positively identified Bobby. Most damningly, the four-year-old had been on the road for at least eight months and possibly even longer. If he was Julia's child, he might not recognize her, especially after a traumatic few weeks of being examined by several doctors, having onlookers constantly photograph him, and being bathed by multiple strangers. The media savaged Julia for failing to recognize Bruce, one paper even saying that she was lower than animals who instinctively knew their young. They wouldn't give her story the credence it deserved, and the trial of Walters continued unabated. Sworn witnesses claimed they saw the boy with Walters in February of 1912, a full six months before Bobby vanished in the swamp. But Bobby's story of there being a second child made these declarations irrelevant. The boy who Walters had been with earlier could have been Bruce, but that didn't mean he didn't kidnap Bobby, too. The jury reasoned that if Walters could kidnap a child, he was more than capable of having done it twice. They found him guilty and convicted him in 1914, sentencing him to life in prison. But even after the supposed kidnapper was put behind bars, doubts still flew around Bobby. The telltale differences between the boy who went missing and the discovered lad were never quite explained. First of all, it's highly unlikely that squinting on the road would cause someone's eyes to change shape. And eight months would probably not be long enough for the scar on his foot to fade, especially since he'd had the scar since infancy. Additionally, Bobby was still unable to recount how he went from the swamp in Louisiana to the company of a traveling piano tuner. Even though he was young, it is unlikely that eight months could completely scrub away those traumatic memories. The court also selectively used the boy's memory against Walters. They ignored Bobby's spotty recollection of other details, but used the story he told of the second boy in the cart. The prosecution spun the theory that perhaps both Bruce 
and Bobby had been on the cart. Some even suggested that the tinker confused the children because they looked so similar. However, Margaret found it strange that nobody took into account that the eyewitness was four years old. He had been put in emotionally tense situations for weeks and had given conflicting and confusing reports. Yet somehow, the prosecution expected the jury to take a single anecdote at face value. Another piece of evidence that those in Opelousas clung to was the fact that Bobby treated Julia like a stranger. None of them considered that the four-year-old boy had already been cared for by Lessie and Percy for weeks when he was presented to her. Even if he did have some memory of his working-class upbringing, surely being doted on by adoring parents would be enough to make him choose a more comfortable life. Speculation about Bobby's identity swirled around him his whole life. Even long after the case was resolved, Bobby was interviewed again when he was 24. In 1932, the Lindbergh kidnapping was all over the papers, so reporters hunted down the famous lost child to get his opinion. And the discussion of Bobby's kidnapping was still alive and well in 2003, while Margaret was deep into her investigation. After working alongside Linda and looking into Julia's case, her previously ironclad belief in her family's story was now full of holes. The key to Margaret's change in perspective was found in William Walter's defense file. Towards the very end of this 400-page folder was a six-page letter addressed to Walter's attorneys written by an anonymous person identifying herself only as a Christian woman. A Christian woman claimed that she was bedridden with illness and had been following the case closely. In her letter, she asked why the two children haven't had side-by-side photographs published so that people can evaluate their differences. The letter touched on other points, such as why the media savaged Julia for misidentifying her child, but spared Lessie the same fate. However, her main point lay in the very center of the case. Why did it take Lessie giving Bobby a bath for her to recognize him? Putting down the letter, Margaret sighed heavily. She couldn't let secondhand accounts and confirmation bias settle this mystery once and for all. It was time they turned to forensic science. Up next, Margaret's investigation reaches its conclusion. Now back to the story. Margaret Dunbar Cutright investigated her family legend from 1999 through 2003. The original story was that her grandfather was kidnapped as a boy in Louisiana and was recovered eight months later in Mississippi. Over four years, Margaret pored over thousands of documents from the time and even interviewed the families of Julia Anderson and William Walters. She contemplated getting a DNA test for her father, Bobby Dunbar Jr., but hesitated. Before they took such a bold stab at finding the truth, Margaret wanted the consent of all of Bobby Sr.'s children. Yet now in 2003, Bobby Dunbar Jr. was in the hospital with congestive heart failure. It seemed like his time was running out. 
A reporter from the Associated Press interviewed Bobby Jr. about his father's mystery and asked if he was interested in a DNA test. With Margaret present, Bobby told the reporter that he wanted to do it, since if DNA analysis had been around in his father's day, Bobby Dunbar Sr. would have chosen to. In late 2003, Margaret and Bobby Jr. talked about what this would mean for a long time before they came to a compromise. They would have the test done and keep the results sealed until all of Bobby Dunbar Sr.'s children consented to have them opened. They took samples from David Dunbar, Alonzo's son, that the lab would compare with DNA from Bobby Jr. They sent the specimens in, and for the first time in years, Margaret's investigation held its breath. As the days wore on, the mystery weighed heavily upon Margaret. She had been reading these files for years. Was it all wasted time? A month after they sent in the DNA samples, Margaret called the lab to see how the testing was going. The lab assistant who answered was unaware of how important this case was and that Margaret wanted to keep the findings secret. She merely thought it was a paternity test, so she casually told Margaret the result. The DNA did not match. Bobby and David were unrelated. Margaret stood there, frozen in time, shock welling up inside her. There was only one thing to do. She promptly got in her car and drove 10 hours to see her father in the hospital. When she arrived, she told Bobby Jr. the result. He was struck to the core. The blood running through his veins was someone else's blood. His whole legacy was something different, something strange and alien he didn't know how to feel about. But as Bobby ruminated on the meaning of his newly discovered genealogy, he and Margaret realized that they had to tell the family, especially since the Associated Press was gearing up to write a story on it. But here, a problem reared its head. Most of Bobby's siblings were unaware that he'd taken the DNA test and were against the investigation from the beginning. The extended Dunbar family reacted to the news with universal anger. Apart from Alonzo's son, David, none of them had agreed to the test, and they felt betrayed. They accused Margaret of being selfish and untrustworthy. Many of them didn't even accept the facts the DNA told them. They were Dunbars, they said, and nothing could convince them otherwise. It's easy to understand why the younger Dunbars were so incensed by the result. With the story back in the public eye, it could seem like Percy and Lessie Dunbar were kidnappers, manipulating the sympathy of the nation to steal an innocent child. In early 2004, the Associated Press published their article about the mystery. Immediately after this, many of the Dunbar family stopped talking to Margaret. She had started the investigation after her brother died tragically with the hope that it would unite her family. In fact, it did the opposite. The rift between the Dunbars grew, and Margaret found herself reflecting on Julia Anderson, the mother who fought for her family but was despised for it. After she became the laughingstock of Opelousas, Julia moved to Mississippi, 
remarried, and had seven children. People remembered her as industrious and loving. She was a community fixture during the Depression when she sewed clothing for impoverished children. Throughout her hardships, she had shown great strength, yet she always had a shadow lingering over her. Bruce. Her surviving relatives said that she would frequently talk about her lost son, often calling him Bobby, hoping that he turned out all right. The libelous newspapers had been wrong. She was not a callous woman who treated her children as mistakes to be brushed under a rug. Her loss haunted her long after she left Opelousas. But she was not the only one tormented by the pain of these events. On the eighth anniversary of Bobby's kidnapping, Percy Dunbar stabbed and beat a man during a business trip in Florida. That same year, he and Lessie divorced, Lessie citing frequent infidelity. Whatever peace that finding Bobby brought them, it was not enough to keep them together. Attached to the divorce papers was a note that Lessie wrote to her granddaughter, Elizabeth. The note said that she hoped it would help explain why she remained in her shell of grief. She feared that they had abducted another family's little boy. She had fought another mother for the child, and the scars they gave each other would last their whole lives. But even though Julia never saw her little boy again, the Anderson family finally experienced a bit of her happy ending in 2003. After being discharged from the hospital, Bobby Jr. and his wife, Imelda, went to Mississippi to deliver the news to the descendants of Julia Anderson. They were met with a warm welcome. Jewel Tarver, Julia's 76-year-old daughter and Bruce's half-sister, told them that in spite of their newfound familial connection, they wouldn't make any demands of the Dunbars. All they wanted was friendship. Unlike the ill-tempered Dunbar relatives, they carried no hard feelings from that time. They only wanted to know the truth. And even though William Walters only served two years in prison, his family were still relieved that their relative was exonerated, even 73 years after his death. But though this resolution gave some people peace, there was at least one more person who did not have this happy ending. The original Bobby Dunbar. What truly became of the boisterous little lad on that hot August day in Louisiana may never be uncovered. During the initial search, people spun many theories as to what could have happened to the boy. Some thought he went looking for his father since he had been distraught when his dad had to leave for an appointment. Others pointed to the track of muddy footprints that vanished by the train tracks. Maybe he was following his father and was swept up by a traveling vagabond who was not William Walters. Or perhaps he had fallen into the lake and been stuck in the mud. All of these theories have their flaws. Bobby's father had been gone for a few hours when he vanished, so the toddler had likely gotten over his hissy fit. The idea that he was swept up by a random person is also unlikely, since the short boy would have had to travel an impressive amount of distance to run into a stranger. And the lack of a body proved that he did not fall in the lake. Unfortunately, the most likely explanation was the most tragic. 
Bobby Dunbar was probably eaten by an alligator. The wetlands near Swayze Lake were teeming with the vicious creatures, and they had been known to attack children in the past. The intensive search never found any remains, likely because they were digested. And though the hunters cut open several alligators, they could not possibly cut open all of the scaly culprits. This might be another reason why some in the Dunbar family cannot accept that Bobby was living a borrowed life. If this were true, the picture that it paints is a horrific one, that the town of Opelousas ganged up on an innocent woman. Moreover, the image of Lessie and Percy Dunbar fighting viciously to take a child from his mother rather than facing the fact that their son was dead is a truly heartbreaking one. And though to the outside world, Bobby appeared to fully move on from this ambiguity in his past, there is evidence to suggest that he had his own doubts. In fact, the children of Julia Anderson told Margaret that Bobby visited them a couple of times. In 1944, Hollis Rawls, Julia's son and Bruce's half-brother, was working at an ice plant when a man walked in. The man stood there, and they made small talk for a little while. He introduced himself as Bobby Dunbar. Hollis was startled by this revelation, and he didn't know how to act in front of this man or what questions to ask him. So he did little more than enjoy pleasant conversation before both men had to go back to work. Hollis's sister, Jewel Tarver, said that Bobby approached her at a service station where she was working. He drank coffee and asked her questions for around an hour, but never identified himself. It was only after he left that she realized that the man she was talking to might have been her long-lost brother. It seems that though he had a front of confidence, Bobby harbored his own doubts, fears he kept hidden from his children. Even though the case of Bobby Dunbar ravaged Lessie, tormented Percy, victimized Walters, and brutalized Julia, Bobby himself was the one with the most baggage. He was the one who had no choice in how his life continued. Later in life, he often retold the memory of being one of two boys in the cart with Walters. This memory could very well have been distorted or confused, but it helped him cling to his identity, reassuring him that he was Bobby Dunbar. His place in the world wasn't stolen. But his story does have a happy ending. Though his childhood wasn't ideal, he was able to build a loving family as an adult. So many people use a terrible upbringing as an excuse to make the world more miserable. Bobby could have done this. He was on the road living hand to mouth as a child. He had adults fighting over him, undressing him, searching his body for every imperfection. His parents divorced and he lived through the Great Depression. Yet through all of that, he still raised a family that was so close, they rejected hard science because they felt like it contradicted the love that he gave them. The truth of his blood does not change the truth of those 53 years he lived. Even his son was faced with this when in 1953, the teenage Bobby Jr. witnessed his father being interviewed about the story. 
Hearing for the first time how uncertain his father was about his identity shook the child to his core. After the press had left, Bobby Jr. boldly asked his father, Who are you? Who do you think you are? The boy who would never know where he came from looked firmly at his son and said, I know who I am, and I know who you are, and nothing else matters. It's how we live our life. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next week with new episodes. For more information on Bobby Dunbar's kidnapping, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book, The Case for Solomon, Bobby Dunbar and the Kidnapping that Haunted a Nation, by Tal McThenia and Margaret Dunbar-Cutright, very useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. See you next week. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. <laughs>